0: Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Let's face it, suffering is a major problem for those of us who believe in a good and powerful God. How do you answer skeptics who challenge your belief in God because of the gratuitous suffering endemic in human history. In this episode we'll explore some answers to this question offered by several worldviews outside of Christianity before looking at how the Christian meta-narrative offers hope. Here now is episode 397, Why Christianity Part 10: Suffering and Evil with Jerry Weerwill. Why
1: is there suffering? And evil. Well, first, before we get started, let's let's kind of just talk about evil. Uh, and suffering is, is the outworking of evil. There's two different types of evil. We can categorize them. So these are just generic categories. Uh, one is called natural evil, the other one's called moral evil. In natural evil, this is events uh, that are being described of as being evil. Uh, They don't have an inherent evil nature in them. They're just destructive, or they cause hurt and suffering. These are usually caused by impersonal agents, meaning non-living things. Uh, Some examples would be earthquakes, uh, hurricanes, famines, forest fires, and illnesses, and things like that, where people are hurting and suffering, and we call that stuff evil, but there's not actually a conscious mind acting evilly in them. On the other hand, moral evil is caused by a deliberate choice. It's caused by somebody's actions uh, upon another or upon themselves. And so this involves personal agency. And this would be like murder, rape, torture, theft, slander, and, and a host of other behaviors that are considered evil. In natural evil, our world has tons of examples. I think back to like in 2004, there was a massive tidal wave off the coast of India, in Sri Lanka. This tidal wave just devastated the the inhabitants of the island and was responsible for about 230,000 deaths. We call this a natural evil in the sense that it was destructive, it caused fatalities, people lost their homes, uh, people were injured, uh, property and, and other types of things were lost, destroyed, or, or damaged. And even more recently, in Haiti, there was another tsunami in 2010 that claimed the lives of upwards of 300,000 people. These are our massive natural disasters that we call evil. But these type of natural disasters and evilness uh, really uh, is, we're on the receiving end of of nature for the part of what we call natural evil. And if we wanted to go into things like personal illnesses, uh, probably each one of us could express a connection to somebody who is currently suffering from an illness, disease, or has died from one. So we deal with these type of things each and every day. But it's not quite the same though as dealing with what is called horrendous evil or gratuitous evil. This is a a category of moral evil that goes beyond just simple little crimes like murder, rape, theft, torture, and things like that. This is where people go to the extreme and they display such wickedness, such evil (coughs) that is on a whole nother scale, a very grand scale. Some of these people we might know because in the last century, the last 100 years, we have seen the greatest display of horrendous evil, more so than all the 20 past centuries combined, back to the time of Christ even. Such people like Pol Pot, uh, leader of Cambodia, the uh, Cambodian killing fields, fields just, just covered with bodies that were slain in a genocide attempt to, to rid the country of unwanted uh, persons. And the count for the body is, bodies is upwards of 2.5 million. But that's just starting. We can go on now to Joseph Stalin, leader of the Soviet Union, who in his regime is responsible for the deaths of upwards of 20 million people. And then we go even further. Mao Zedong, the communist leader of China, the founder of the Republic of China. Not speaking anything against the country, but the leader, Mao Zedong, is responsible for 45 million people in China dying. You guys might uh, remember back in uh, 1994, there was a massive uh, genocide in Rwanda the Rwandan Genocide. In 100 days, 1 million Rwandese were slaughtered mercilessly because they belonged to a specific tribe that the people in power wanted to eradicate. This type of evil is what people are questioning. How is there a God if this is what is going on in the world? Well, There are a couple ways to discuss this solution, and I want to go through the three main approaches. I want to say right before we do that is Friedrich Nietzsche, the atheist philosopher, he said that he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. So if you have a why, you can find a way to have a how to make it through. And these three categories of trying to explain suffering and evil are trying to offer the why, the answer the why question. Now, in the East, we have Eastern religions, things like Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age mysticism. In these ways of thinking, basically suffering is the problem, as Sean explained. The world is filled with suffering. And the goal is to actually escape the world, to escape suffering. The problem that they say in like Buddhism is that we are caught up in this, this wheel of suffering, birth, death, rebirth, over and over again. And what you do is you go up or down closer to enlightenment or nirvana or farther away from it, depending upon how you live your life. The solution is to try and find extinguishment. Nirvana actually means to be freed. You you want to be extinguished from suffering. And the only way out of it is detachment. The only way to overcome suffering is basically to not care about anything. Detachment from all material objects. Detachment from all emotions. Even love is disdained. You want to find yourself having this knowledge of what it's like to exist above reality without the material attachments to the world. The way to achieve that is, as Sean said, you know, uh, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, you know, that there is suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's a way to cease suffering, and the way to do that is the Eightfold Path. And they basically all deal with extreme asceticism and self-denial and rejection of all pleasure. period. There's no justice, there's no comfort and there's no joy. You're trying to escape suffering. Now we have non-theistic religions. Uh, they also have to deal with suffering. Everybody has to deal with suffering. Nobody is excluded. This is a worldwide issue. For everybody. Atheism, agnosticism, naturalism. uh, These people, they basically fight against suffering. They fight for all it's worth. They they are gritting their teeth. And by tooth and nail, they try to overcome suffering through technology. Through things like medicine. And through uh, humanitarian efforts. But the problem with it is that they're actually is no meaning behind the suffering. It just is. The, world is. the world consists of time plus chance plus matter, and therefore suffering isn't really evil. It's just what happens. And so what, what they want to do is secularists or non-theists, they want to face suffering head-on and try to conquer it. They want to try to make the world a better place through their own, the sweat of their own brow. Unfortunately... Secularists, uh, non-theists, they face a never-ending cycle of defeat because there is no conquering the suffering in this world. There is, n- there is no possible way to actually fix all the problems that we experience in the world. I'm reminded of um, the atheist and, and nihilist uh, Albert Camus, and he has this uh, illustration called the myth of Sisyphus where Sisyphus has to roll a boulder up a hill only to then watch it roll back down and he has to then repeat the process again. Roll the boulder up the hill and then it rolls down and it goes on and on and that is his curse. And that's kind of like what secularists have to do. They just have to fight against suffering in a never-ending battle of losing. Then we come to a, a biblical approach to suffering. And here we have Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the monotheistic religions of the world. These three religions are unique in that they pose suffering to be a problem that is external to us. Now, they they all approach it a little bit differently. Uh, Judaism and Christianity pretty much have a, a very similar foundation upon which to understand suffering and evil. Islam is a little bit different. In Islam, uh, suffering and evil are actually products of uh, disobedience and unbelief. And that Satan, or there is no personal agent that is behind evil. There, is, there are um, evil demons, and, the, and there is a, a character that they would refer to as like the devil, but he doesn't actually, he's not actually the cause of evil. He just entices and tempts people to do evil. Uh, evil is basically not adhering to God's law, to obeying Allah. But in Judaism and Christianity, as we have seen through the meta-narrative, there's actually a cause that evil and suffering isn't the way that the world was supposed to be. It changed. Now, what to do about that? Well, that answer comes in the form of redemption in Jesus Christ. However, I think G.K. Chesterton said it really well. He was asked by the London Times and the London Times sent out this big inquiry questionnaire to a lot of people to receive input and they asked, what is wrong with the world? And they received tons of responses, but GK Chesterton just wrote back on a simple little note card, I am. And he's right, because the problem is people evil and suffering come because of free will choices, because the world has been corrupted by sin, that through the initial disobedience and what we learned about in the fall through the Christian metanarrative, that the world has been forever changed since then. However, it's not going to stay that way. And we're going to talk about a little bit regarding the ending of the story and how the biblical worldview, specifically the Christian metanarrative, answers the question of suffering and evil the best. Now, the problem is, is that people are hung up on the idea that evil and suffering exist, and God exists and how all that can be possible. And we come to this thing called the trilemma. It's not a dilemma, it's a trilemma. There's three things involved here, three sayings. The questions are, is evil actually evil? And is God all good? And is God all-powerful? Now, if we state these as propositions, we'll get something like evil exists, God is all-good, and God is all-powerful. Now, the thing is, is that all three of these people have problems affirming the the triad. And this issue between these three propositions goes all the way back to Uh, Greek philosopher Epicurus. Epicurus, um, he said, God either wants to eliminate bad things and cannot, or can and does not want to, or neither wishes to nor can, or both wants to and can. If he wants to and cannot, then he is weak, and this does not apply to God. If he can but does not want to, then he is spiteful which is equally foreign to God's nature. If he neither wants to nor can, he is both weak and spiteful, and so not a god. If he both wants to and can, which is the only thing fitting for a god, where do bad things come from? Or why does he not eliminate them? This is the oldest formulation for what is called the problem of evil, also known as the inconsistent triad, or so the skeptics say. First part of what Epicurus says is, God is willing but not able to prevent evil, then he is not omnipotent. That means he's not all-powerful. If it's number two, God is able to prevent evil but not willing, then God is not omnibenevolent, meaning God is not all good. Three, if God is both able and willing, then why do we suffer? Why doesn't God do something? That is what the skeptics wonder. Why doesn't God do something? Because they think he should. According to the inconsistent triad, given that evil does exist, people do not deny these experiences, they then conclude God is either not all-powerful or not all-good, or he just doesn't even, he's not even there. God doesn't exist at all. So this is the question that skeptics raise about the presence of suffering and evil in the world. And this is quint, uh, epitomized by David Hume, the great skeptic. And he said, Epicurus' old questions have still not been answered. Is he, God, willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is in- impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? Why is there any misery at all in the world? Not by chance, surely, from some cause then. It is from the intention of the deity, but he is perfectly benevolent. Is it contrary to his intention? But he is almighty. Nothing can shake the solidity of this reasoning so short, so clear, so decisive. As Humes may think that this actually poses a great quandary for the theistic believer in God. And this then raises up people to think in these lines such as Stephen Fry, uh, a very avid atheist and outspoken atheist. He says, the God who made this universe, given all the evil and suffering in it, if it actually was created by him, given that, su- that presupposition he's saying, that this God is quite clearly a maniac. Because for Stephen Fry, suffering and evil are incompatible with the idea that there is an all-good, all-powerful God who created everything. People like Stephen Fry, not to pick on him personally, but as he represents skeptics, most people are really not interested in understanding the answer. They just want a stick that they can beat God with. If somebody truly is generally asking the question, then it demands an honest answer. And I think the Christian narrative, the meta-narrative, the biblical worldview has the best answer. But otherwise, they're just looking for a reason to blame God. They're looking for somebody to point the finger at. Because when you're hurting or when you see such pain and suffering in the world, people want someone to be responsible for it. People want to know who they can now put the guilt on. The problem is that most people don't want to know the true answer to the question. And so they retain their skepticism and their disapproval of God allowing suffering and evil in the world. I want to read for you guys a parable. This uh, is by um, Basil Mitchell, who uh, was in a debate uh, with Andrew Flew. And he described uh, the way that you look at suffering and evil in the world and connection with God and what God is doing about it. And he explains it through this parable. It's called the parable of the resistance fighter. It goes like this. In time of war, in an occupied country, a member of the resistance meets one night a stranger who deeply impresses him. They spend that night together in conversation. The stranger tells the partisan, which is the one who's in the resistance, that he himself is on the side of the resistance. Indeed, that he is actually in command of it. This stranger is telling the resistance the person in the resistance, that he's actually leading the resistance. And he urges the Partesian, uh, the person in the resistance, to have faith in him no matter what happens. The Partesian is utterly convinced at that meeting of the stranger's sincerity and constancy, and he undertakes to trust him completely. They never meet in conditions of intimacy again. But sometimes, the stranger is seen helping members of the resistance, and the Partisan is grateful and says to his friends, see, he's on our side. Sometimes, he is seen in the uniform of the police, handing over patriots to the occupying power. On these occasions, his friends murmur against him, but the Partisan still says, he's on our side. He still believes that in spite of appearances, the stranger did not deceive him. Sometimes he asks the stranger for help and receives it, and he is then thankful. Sometimes he asks and does not receive it. Then he says, the stranger knows best. Sometimes his friends in exasperation say, well, what would he have to do for you to admit that you were wrong and that he is not on our side. But the Partesian refuses to answer. He will not consent to put the stranger to the test. And sometimes his friends complain, well, if that's what you mean by his being on our side, the sooner he goes over to the other side, the better. In this parable, the stranger represents God the Partesian who meets the stranger is a believer. And the time that they spend together is the time that the Partesian, the believer, comes to understand and then trust in God that no matter what happens after this time, that God is telling the believer to trust him. And that while sometimes it may look like he may be doing something that doesn't make sense, or maybe doing something that they would disagree with, that he's actually working for the good of the resistance. The resistance being the conflict between good and evil. And that actually, when they win the war, and then all the stories are told, and everybody comes to understand why certain things happened, and what was going on here and there, that the Partesian would then realize it was all done for the sake of the resistance and overcoming the enemy. This parable helps to explain how sometimes God works in ways that are not known to us. Sometimes things happen in the world and God permits them to happen and we don't understand why. But the answer that the Christian meta-narrative gives is that we don't have to know every single why, to end up having a how, because the how has been given to us. In Jesus Christ, we have a how to hold on to in times of suffering, when we experience evil, a hope that never disappoints. This is the story of Job, where Job was involved in great suffering, He experienced extreme evil, the loss of everything except his wife. And Job had three friends who tried to tell him the answer of why. And they were bad answers. They didn't really solve anything for him. And then finally, when he questions God and God speaks to him, God tells him, get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, if you're going to question me, let me question you. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? Have you ever assigned the dawn its place? Or it may seize the the edges of the earth and shake the wicked out of it. Where is the road to the home of light? Do you know where darkness lives? So you can lead it back to its border? Are you familiar with the path to its home? Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you impose its authority on earth? Can you command the clouds so that, they flood, so that a flood of waters cover you? Who put wisdom into the heart and gave the mind understanding? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds? Does the hawk take flight by your understanding? Does it spread its wings to the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and make its nest on high? God asked Job question after question after question that is unanswerable for a human mind, for a limited little perspective of a person. We do not understand everything that God does, we don't understand the entire way that God is working all things out for the good of his people, to overcome the occupying power of this world. To defeat the enemy. In Acts chapter 14, it says, when they, referring to Paul and Barnabas, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, this is a Greek word, philipsis, That means hardships, suffering, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. See, suffering is not something unknown to the Christian. It's actually something to be expected. We live in a world where the enemy is imposing suffering upon us. And sometimes God intervenes and does something, and other times he doesn't. But to question whether or not God is good is to then put him to the test in a way that we are not able to. We are not over God. We do not have our sense of justice to then put God on the stand and ask Him why He does what He does. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What we know is that in our suffering, God is there with us in it. And God will comfort us and help us endure through that suffering. As long as we maintain our trust in him, then we will be on his side and he will be there helping us through it. And even if the deliverance doesn't come in this day and time in this life, God promises that he will make it all right one day. One day there will be restitution. One day there will be justice and we will be filled with joy that is beyond anything in this world. And that is why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, I love this end of the chapter. It says, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. We don't focus on the suffering. We don't focus on the evil that's happening. That is not the only thing that exists in this world, because with God, there is something yet to happen. There is a hope for what we do not yet see. And at the end here, it says, For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Everything we're going through, ladies and gentlemen, is temporary. The suffering and the evil has its time set for it. And one day, God will eradicate that and we will live in a world where there is no suffering, there is no evil, there's no pain, sorrow, and death. So that is the way the Christian looks at suffering, and evil. And I think it answers the questions better than any other framework, worldview, or system out there.
0: Well, that concludes this episode of the Why Christianity class on suffering and evil. If you have a question or comment, please come on to restitutio.org and find episode 397, Why Christianity Part 10 on suffering and evil, and leave your comment there. I did want to mention that we do have a Facebook group for those of you on Facebook that you can join. You just search for Restitudio and ask to join. It is a private group. So the downside of that is anything in there isn't shareable in the outside Facebook universe. But the upside of that is that anything you say is not going to show up on other people's timelines either. So uh, come on and join if you are interested. Uh, We had someone named Hector just joined, who said, I've been binge listening to this podcast for about five months, and I didn't think to join this group. I'm pumped that I can go back and actually watch some of these apologetics classes. Um, And then Brandon replied, I love the backlog of apologetic stuff in the Restitutio classes section. I go back and listen from time to time, even to ones I've heard before. And that brings up a good point. We do actually have A separate podcast feed for those of you who are listening on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you prefer that just has the classes in it. No other episodes, no sermons, no interviews, no panel discussions. And so if you're looking to just get right through a a number of classes, I would definitely recommend the Rest Studio Classes podcast. It's kept up to date and synchronized with the main feed, which has everything in it, Uh, but uh, there are other classes in there. This is actually our second go-around on apologetics. I had an apologetics class on there a while back, uh, and this is kind of a different angle than our traditional apologetics in the sense that rather than giving robust defenses for various Christian propositions—God exists, the Bible is true, Jesus was raised from the dead, and so on and so forth— what we're doing is looking at the advantages of the Christian worldview. Why Christianity? Why is Christianity so great? Could be another name for that. But I think that title was already taken by Dinesh D'Souza or some other apologist. So, yeah, why Christianity? Why Why is Christianity? I mean, look, we all have to struggle with the question of suffering in this world. The atheist says, well, it's just the way it is. Uh, survival of the fittest random things happen, there's no rhyme or reason to it, too bad, tough luck, keep a stiff upper lip. Whereas the Buddhist is going to argue for detachment, and the Muslim is going to argue probably, my guess would be on a strict sense of justice, Uh, but we find lots of cases in our world today where, where, where good people suffer horrible tragedy, and where bad people don't suffer. So, I don't think that's really adequate, and I'm sure that they probably have a better answer to that. But the Christian worldview is really fascinating because of those last two elements of the meta narrative redemption and restoration. Redemption means that God, through Christ, has already begun the process of dealing with suffering, of, in a sense, suffering Himself vicariously through His Son, so that we could ultimately be set free from many of the different kinds of suffering that sin brings about in our lives today, and then the restoration component of ultimately one day God making everything wrong with the world right. So the, the real Christian genius or solution to the question, why does God allow suffering? If God's all powerful, all good, why does suffering exist? The Christian answer is, well, why does it still exist? Because he does plan to do away with Uh, at least gratuitous pain and suffering. I, I don't know if there will be any level of suffering at all. I mean, are you going to feel hunger pains in the kingdom? I don't know. But as far as the tragic sufferings of sickness and death and these kinds of things, we do know that these are what will pass away in the age to come when Jesus comes back. So that, to me, is a very satisfying answer to the solution of the problem of suffering, even if we don't understand on a micro scale why this or that is allowed to happen. And I do recommend that we have discussed this issue a number of times in previous podcasts. Brandon Duke did a series on soul making, and Jerry Wherewell responded to that, and I had some previous podcasts related to this subject as well, taking it from various different angles And so if you are interested in that, in the show notes for this episode, I've got a link to all our podcast episodes that interact with this very important question. Don't brush it under the rug. This is a genuinely important question, whether you're talking to somebody that's outside of Christianity or talking to somebody that is inside or even just talking to yourself and you're just like, how do I make sense of this? Look, there are a variety of explanations in Scripture, but ultimately the real uh, solution, if you can call it that, is to look at the hope that is to come, knowing that God does plan to set everything wrong with the world right. And we cling to that hope knowing that right now there is a lot of question, there is a lot of confusion, there is a lot of pain that we're all going through, but uh, that hope can be an anchor of our souls. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at Restitudio. Dot org. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.